You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. How was your weekend? I don't care, actually. I just want to tell you about my weekend, and that's the segue. My weekend began in Minneapolis, Minnesota on Friday afternoon, where I had lunch with Betty Hodges, who is the mayor of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Anna Marie Cox, uh, and another friend. And the reason that I was having lunch with the mayor is the mayor sent me an email, the mayor of Minneapolis, uh, wanting to declare Friday, September 26th in Minneapolis to be Dan Savage Day in Minneapolis. And this is apparently power that is vested in the mayor of Minneapolis alone, in this arena, declaring this or that day, she rules by decree and she didn't have to approve it with anybody. So uh, the mayor said it was Dan Savage fucking day in Minneapolis, Minnesota on Friday, September 26th. And it was, and I was there. I have the proclamation to prove it. The mayor read it aloud to me in a public park across the street from the cafe where we had lunch in front of Anna Marie and my friend as half-naked, insanely sexy Midwestern jogger boys jogged by. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, I did not abuse my authority in Minneapolis on Friday, September 26th on Dan Savage Day. I did not order fundamentalist Christians and registered Republicans to leave the city until the next day. We did not declare it an asshole-free zone. We just let everybody do their thing, whatever their thing might be, on Dan Savage Day. I am not a tyrant. The other thing I did on Friday the 26th in Minnesota was I hosted Hump, the amateur porn festival that began here in Seattle and Portland and now tours the country. Uh, It was the last stop on the 2014 hump tour. Today is actually the deadline for hump submissions. If you have some porn you made that is lying around and you want to submit it to hump, go to humptour.com, click on submit and you'll get all the info you need to get that into us quickly. Like today for the 2014 hump festival here in Seattle and in Portland and then the 2015 hump tour, which will take place next year. I just want to say something quickly about Hump. For everybody who's seen Hump, who gets Hump, there's really something magic about Hump. And it was reinforced for me one last time watching the Hump tour audience in in Minneapolis. And that's what I do. I watch the audience. I've seen the porn. I've seen it a bunch. I watch the audiences watch Hump. And Hump is, if you haven't been, it's animation, it's hardcore, it's softcore, it's kink, it's vanilla, it's trans, it's cis, it's gay, it's straight, it's bi, it's les, it's everything. It's everybody's crazy stuff. And what I love about Hump after a screening is people will come up to me and say, my friends dragged me here. I don't like porn. I loved this. And the difference I really think is that Hump is people who don't like porn complain that porn is dehumanizing. Hump is really deeply humanizing porn. These are people sharing their stuff, not their shit. I want to say their shit, but there's no shit in Hump. There's no poo in Hump. That is a rule for the filmmakers. No poop, no animals, no children. It's people really sharing their thing, what turns them on. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch these things unfold. And what I watch every time I, I sit in the audience and I watch the audience, what, I, what you see unfold is just something so revealing. You see this insight sort of subconsciously come to people. Because at first you have all these straight people watching gay porn. You have gay men watching lesbian porn. You have very vanilla people watching hardcore kink porn. Um, you have people watching funny porn, that you know, piss porn, pie porn, everything, Right. And at first, people are just thrown back in their chairs because they're just so shocked. The wind is taken out of them the first time they encounter porn that is just so far outside their comfort zone. 
Because, you know, when you watch porn now, you click on what turns you on and nothing else. And hump is really, we're in charge of clicking on it for you. You know, when you're home alone masturbating, you only click on the stuff you want to see. When you come to hump, we clicked. And you're going to watch stuff that if you were home alone masturbating in front of your computer, you would not have clicked on. And at first, people watch that porn that they would not have clicked on. And they're thrown back in their seat and they're shocked. And then something magic begins to happen. At the end of each film, the audience, all of it, erupts in cheers. And what you can see at first is everyone really perceiving their differences. People are watch, straight people watching gay porn going, wow, not my thing, right? And gay men watching lesbians eat each other's pussies going, wow, not my thing. And then what unfolds over the screening, over the two hours of the Hump Festival, is everyone who's at first so in touch with and tap with is so – everyone who at first can only see the differences begin to see – all those people begin to see the similarities. That under the plumbing, right, under the, the kinks or the costumes or whatever else – the, the emotions, the desire, the lust, the vulnerability, um, the humor, all of that is the same across the board. Whatever your shit is, whatever your kink is, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your gender identity is, desire, vulnerability, relationships, sex, passion, all of that is exactly the same. And at the end of the Hump Festival, at the end of those two hours, you see people get it. You see people get that I may be gay, but those dykes are doing exactly what I'm doing. And I may be straight, but those kinky faggots are doing exactly what I'm doing. I may be not trans, but those trans people experience the exact same things that I experience. When, it's, when we're talking about love and desire and sex. And that is really kind of the magic of hump. If you can get to a hump festival sometime, you should. Tickets for the hump festival in Seattle and Portland go on sale October 1st. Go to humpseattle.com and click on tickets for information. It's going to be at On the Boards in Seattle, Thursday, November 6th through Saturday, November 15th, and in Portland, Oregon at Cinema 21, Thursday, November 13th through Sunday, November 16th, and one night only in Olympia, Washington at the Capitol Theater. And then these films will be going out on tour next year and we'll be bringing Hump to you. But if you want to come see Hump before everybody else, if you want to vote because films win prizes at Hump, there's a $5,000 Best in Show prize and a bunch of others, you have to be at these screenings in Seattle, Portland, and Olympia this November. Okay, coming up on today's show, we've got Margot Howard, daughter of Ann Landers and an advice columnist of note in her own right for the second opinion segment. We'll be talking with Margot about tantric sex. And in the Magnum edition, we've got Diana Adams, a lawyer, talking about custody disputes and divorce when you've been in an open relationship or attempted to initiate one and whether that can be used against you by a vicious soon-to-be ex-spouse. Coming up today on the regular and the Magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. This isn't a question as much as it is a statement. Um, I was just thinking about it and I've had three ex-boyfriends who have always accused me of being a nymphomaniac or having a really high sex drive, which I always thought was peculiar. And I thought to myself, um, there doesn't seem to be a difference between sex drive and masturbation drive, and I think that there should be. I realized that all of these, I say all of these, these three boys have been serial masturbators and doing it every day. And 
I'm not fist-deeping myself all of the time. So, of course, when we do hang out, of course I want to fuck. And then they're like, oh, you don't want to have sex. Anyway, I guess the point is is I can't put this stuff on Facebook because, you know, mum's on there and it's got to be a point of controversy. So I just wanted to give you a call and point this out and say what you thought and um, just, I guess, just say, hey, dudes, Maybe if you take your hand off your cock, you don't have to accuse your girlfriends of being so cock-hungry all the time. We're playing your call as a public service announcement to all those boys out there with their dicks in their hands. But, you know, there are guys who like to have a lot of sex. There are also guys who shame girls who who want sex. And I really feel that your problem with these three guys, these three guys in a row, uh, is either that, you know, they're all terrified little boys with their dicks in their hands who are afraid of women with sexual drives and desires and sexual agency asking for what they want. And that scares them because... They bought the hype that, you know, good girls don't want and that they are there to be acted upon and they're not there to act. And you saying, cock, I would like some cock, please. I'll have the cock scares them and they run off with their dicks in their hands. Um, or these three boys weren't that into you and they preferred their hands to you. Uh, that's also a possibility. It could be a mixture of both. Even one boy could have just not been into you and two boys could have been intimidated by you. My advice to you would be to hang in there, meet better boys, meet boys who are masturbating less. And you know, a lot of young, and it sounds like you're young, a lot of young, inexperienced guys are nervous. They have performance anxiety and they feel pressure and, you know, they have to make with the cock. They have to bust out the erection and they know that they can do it themselves. They're comfortable uh, with masturbation and they may feel a little awkward and hesitant with other human beings, particularly if they're young and inexperienced. But you're within your rights to say, you know what, maybe you should jack off a little less and come on in near me a little more. You should be able to put your desires out there and you will one day put them in front of a guy who isn't afraid of you uh, and prefers sex with women to sex with right hand. All that said, you know, PSA, guys, listen to what she has to say. She has a valid point. But we're really playing your call because, because of this, because of this clip, because we're dying to know what the fuck it is that you're doing to your twat. We, we've listened to this 13 times. Can't understand it. Pl- play the clip, Tech at Risk Youth. I'm not fist-deeping myself all of the time. Okay, one more time. Play that again. I'm not fist-deeping myself all of the time. What is that? Fist-deeping myself. You're fish-staking yourself? What is it? This New Zealand or Australian or some chunk of Britain I'm not familiar with? A uh, term for women masturbating? Fish staking, fist making. What is it that you're doing to your twat? We're very confused. Please call us back and let us know what it is that you said. Because I'm sure we're not the only ones after listening to your call who are curious. Hi there, Dan Savage. Got a straight guy here from Canada with a question on the statute of limitations of social media pictures of exes. So I've been seeing this girl for about four months and she's great. I love her. She's fantastic. One thing about her, though, is when she sees these pictures of my exes on like Facebook or on Instagram, it just, ooh, it just drives her nuts. She just hates it. And she's, you know, expressed this to me. And after some consideration, I've been like, you know, I look at some of the pictures, like a, they're not dirty or anything, but they're intimate. If they show me hugging or, 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 you know, it's like a kiss on the cheek or something. I'm like, those, those are nice pictures, but they don't need to be public. Not everyone needs to see that. So I take those down, but there are still pictures of me, you know, sitting with my ex or, or something like that. And it's still uh, just, just drives her nuts. And I, you know, I think she wants me to, to take them down. And so if this is a reasonable request, I'm, I'm certainly happy to do it, but I just, it's hard for me to tell if, uh, you know, how much of this is, 
is her being reasonable or unreasonable, or maybe I'm just being, you know, a dick about the whole thing and I should just do it because it's like an easy thing for me to do. And, uh, and I can just, and I should just do that and, and not even be calling you. So, uh, your girlfriend's being an unreasonable nutbag about this, I have to say. Is she? Yeah. And, but that's not why I'm calling. I'm calling because you whispered half your call as if oh, she no. was within earshot. Was that the case? We were just we worried no. for you because you sounded like a hostage. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. I was, uh, I was calling from uh, work. Oh, okay. We were just, you know, we yeah. listened to the way that, you know, you sounded on the call and it just sounded like you were afraid of your girlfriend. No, that's, that's not good. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. Are you afraid of your girlfriend? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I think I'm correctly afraid of upsetting someone who I'm in an intimate relationship with, right? And how long have you been dating her? Uh, not long, just a few months. Okay. And it's not just pictures of you kissing or sex that she's asked you to get rid of, but it's all evidence that of your ever having had a girlfriend prior to her ever that she wants yeah. to Yeah. That is unreasonable. Yeah. That is unreasonable, controlling, psycho, jealous behavior. Hmm. I know that was my sense of it too. I, my my issue is like uh, you know because everyone's I think in, entitled to being a little crazy about some stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so my my feeling is is this the thing that maybe she's a little crazy about that I just bend on and I just you know well that's your, that, that's your call. But my advice in those situations is that the person who's being a little bit crazy about whatever that you're going to bend for. They have to be healthy enough to acknowledge that they are a little crazy about this and that they are asking you to bend and they're asking you to really take their irrational insecurity into account uh, in how you treat them and how you conduct yourself. Um, but they take that they take ownership of it. It's not that you've done something terribly wrong by having had girlfriends in the past and having photos of those girlfriends in your various timelines and social media and life, uh, you know, in your phone and your photo albums, if that's a thing you still have. Uh, mm. But she has to say, you know, I'm asking you to please cater to my insecurity here and just get rid of those photos because they make me feel weird and bad. And that's my thing. That's my fault. And I, I would consider it a loving gesture if you would take those insecurities into account. But if she's not healthy enough to take ownership of it, if she's not healthy enough to say it like that, you shouldn't do it. Mm. Because it's, mm. it's just a terrible precedent to set. Yeah, I know. That's what I was worried about, too, it's, because this isn't the last time that the past is going to creep in. Right. And it's a terrible precedent to set to have somebody control, you know, to be able to push that lever of being insecure, angry, irrational, and that can successfully get you to change your behavior or edit yourself or you stuff people and relationships and your history down the memory hole. You just don't want to, to, to go off in that direction. You don't want that to be a pattern, to become a pattern. So say yeah, to her, no, you know, I'll right. put these away. I'll put them in, you know, a vault. I'll, I'll keep them out of sight. I'll get them off the timeline. But you have, but this is your problem, right? Who I am now is partly shaped by the relationships I've had before. You should be grateful to these women because they helped me figure out who and what I wanted. And that is apparently you. So that I've had relationships in the past shouldn't be a threat. It should be something that you're grateful for. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And that actually makes sense. All right, I'm going to give it a shot. Good luck. And if she tells you you got to get rid of all that shit, I'm telling you you got to get rid of her. If what she comes <laughs> down with at the end is, no, no, it's evidence that you're a terrible person, that you keep these things, that you save these mementos of past relationships, she's a terrible person is what she's saying in that moment. And you got to get rid of her. It won't stop with the photographs. You're going to run into an ex on the street and have a perfectly cordial conversation and she's going to flip out. Because when you run into an ex oh. in the street, you're supposed to punch that person in the face, right? In front of your current boyfriend <laughs> and girlfriend. Right. 
So nip this in the bud. Make sure she understands this is her problem and not your problem. Okay. Okay. I'm going to do it. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks so much. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old trans guy, and I have a problem with coming. It's not that I have trouble coming, because with the increase in testosterone, I literally masturbate all the time. My problem is how I come. I've always used the vibrator, mostly because I get the sport touching my own body. Even when I have sex with my partner, I let her touch me, which has taken a lot of work to even get to that point. But still, the only way I can come is with the vibrator. I've even tried the old go-without-masturbation-for-a-while advice that you sometimes give people. That was really hard for me and ended in a pretty severe case of depression. And obviously no orgasms. I'm sure this problem has been cultivated from years of doing the exact same thing, giving myself pleasure and never really fully trusting others to do it. Now that I trust someone, I feel good when she touches me, but it never sends me over the edge. While I would genuinely like to change how I come, the main motivation for improving is for the sake of my relationship. I'm afraid there is a certain level of closeness that cannot be achieved, or she might even feel resentful that she can't get me off. Apart from going to a sex therapist, is there anything I can do to work on this? She can get you off. Give your vibrator to her. Put it in her hands. Let her use your vibrator on you. Let her use her vibrator on you. Let her go and buy another vibrator that she can use on you, and she will make you come. She will get you off using a vibrator. We had Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute on the show just a couple of weeks ago talking about this very issue, uh, that some people are either dependent on vibrators, some women and and some trans men, dependent on vibrators to to climax because uh, they've carved so deep a groove in themselves, but also there are some people who are dependent on vibrators to climax because that's what it takes to get them off. You did exactly what we recommend people do if they want to determine whether they are in A group or B group, whether you are dependent, you've carved a groove into yourself, or this is what you require by taking a long break from using the vibrator. And I think what you discovered during that long and depressing break was that you are not A group. You are not dependent because you've carved a groove. You are a B group. You, this is what you need. This is the tool you need to climax. And so you need to accept that this is how your stuff works. This is how your orgasms work. And you will have the tools at hand and that these tools will be used by you, used by your partner uh, to give you pleasure. And you need to stop being on the rack about it and stop privileging, if I may use that word in this context, stop privileging orgasms obtained uh, with fingers and tongues or whatever else uh, that comes built in in a person's anatomy with the orgasms obtained with a vibrator, with the tool at hand that you require to get off. Accept it. This is how your junk goes. You can climax. You can get off. I'm not going to order you to be grateful uh, for that fact, but be cognizant of the fact that there are lots of people out there who cannot climax and struggle with that. Well, you can, and you know how, and you know what works. And I'm just going to encourage you again to put that vibrator into your partner's hands. And when she uses it on you, when she uses that tool, she is giving you that orgasm, not the vibrator. The vibrator is the tool. She is picking up that hammer. She's using that tool. She's driving your nails, right? And it's working. She's building those orgasms that you require. Letter. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old straight woman. Unfortunately, I am in the middle of dealing with a fibroid tumor that is the size of a grapefruit. 
a month ago, I started hemorrhaging and was hospitalized for a week, which was great. Uh, they cut off the blood supply to the tumor and are hoping that it will shrink so that they can remove it at some point. Um, in the meantime, we are kind of in watch and wait mode for potentially the next several months as we hope this is, this thing shrinks and then we can take it out. Um, my question for you is how do I keep from going out of my mind? Um, I cannot have an orgasm because the contractions in my uterus aggravate the tumor, and it would be really awesome if I could avoid hemorrhaging again. Um, my husband and I did try vaginal sex. Uh, I didn't come and everything down there seemed okay. Um, it kind of helped take the edge off, but I'm really still horny all of the time. Um, I was interested to see if you had any other ideas or if I just kind of have to suck it up for a while. Wow. Sorry to hear this. Sorry that you have this tumor. Sorry that you're, that you hemorrhage, you wound up in the hospital. Uh, and I'm also sorry to say that you're just going to have to suck it up. If your doctor's recommendation is to avoid having orgasms because you could wind up hemorrhaging again and back in the hospital again, you are just going to have to go without coming until you get the all clear, until it's safe to come. Hopefully that will be very soon. And you do have a right to go to your doctor and bring this up. You have a right to prioritize your not just your sexual health, but your sexual fulfillment with your medical professional. You can go to him and say, what can and can I do? And how long is this going to go on? Um, go to him or her and say those things uh, and ask for their best recommendation about alternatives or what your timeline exactly is around when uh, and how soon, no, around when you'll be able to start having orgasms again. In the meantime, enjoy what you can. Have the sex that you can, have the intimacy and closeness that you can, but if those contractions are going to aggravate this tumor and you could wind up in the hospital hemorrhaging, putting your life in danger, you absolutely positively should not have orgasms for the time being. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old gay male living in Portland, Oregon. About a month ago, my boyfriend and I split up. At the time of the break, uh, our feelings for each other were lopsided. He had already kind of gone through the motions of splitting up with me in his head before he announced it. And when it happened, I was surprised and, and I wanted the relationship to continue. Anyway, because of circumstances, I just can't leave the apartment for at least another month. Uh, I've tried talking to friends or possible places to stay, but as of right now, I have to be in that apartment. The problem is is that he's already moving on and just being around him arouses all kinds of feelings and rips my heart apart. So I'm curious if you have any ideas of what I can do to protect myself here because ignoring him, trying to talk to him, filling my day with activities, exhausting myself, none of these things seem to work. And right now I'm kind of at my wit's end because no matter what I do, whenever I come back to the apartment, it's like starting all over again, and I'm completely crushed. Any advice you have to help me protect myself would be greatly appreciated. I was in a very similar circumstance once, uh, living with somebody after we had broken up. Uh, I had done the dumping. I had dumped my boyfriend um, after we had lived together for a year and it was super awkward because I, even though I did the dumping, I was so depressed. I was so down about the failure of this relationship. And for two or three months, I just kind of didn't leave the house and moped. And 
during those two or three months, he sucked every dick in Washington State. We all grieve in our own way. And I don't resent or begrudge my ex-boyfriend uh, for grieving uh, the end of our relationship in his own way. Uh, but it was painful. It was really hard uh, to live together. And here's what we did over those months. We spent as little time in the apartment together as possible. Maybe one of the reasons we're still on good terms today and still friendly today is that we just made ourselves scarce. Went to work a lot, worked in cafes and bars a lot. I'm not going to give away the city where you live, but I'm very familiar with the city where you live. And there are tons of great bars and cafes and and parking lots full of uh, food trucks where people sit all day. Uh, you can take your laptop, you can take your phone, you can get out of the, you can take a book, you can get out of the house and go places uh, and work there and hang out there and really only sleep at home. The time that you have to share this apartment with your ex, uh, this painful time, will pass more quickly and less painfully if most of the time, 90% of the time that you are in that apartment with him, you are unconscious because you are asleep. The rest of the time you are out and about and running around. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight-ish, pretty much by young 20s female and um, I've been wrestling with myself whether or not to call in, but I suppose it's worth a shot. I can't really get off at all unless I'm masturbating to porn where the situation is a girl getting date raped pretty much. Um, whether she's in completely inebriated and passed out or, well, yeah, that's pretty much it and multiple guys throwing her and it's the only way I really get off. I mean, sort of lack of control thing I suppose might have something to do with it but um, I, I used to be a heavy drinker and then my my body was kind of shutting down so I was forced to quit well and willingly I did quit but back then when I had sexual partners I would have to be just absolutely wasted to have sex otherwise I just wouldn't get it on like get it going I wouldn't feel turned on at all nothing and I mean, the attention felt good. It was more of that, like, intimacy feeling good. But, you know, no guy has ever been able to make me come or much close. And the only time I get close is when I'm watching this porn. I'm envisioning this while masturbating. And I just... It's getting to the point where I feel awful about it. And I haven't said this out loud ever. And, I mean, I'm a really big women's rights advocate. I'm very anti-date rape. I went to school where it was prominent. One of my best friends was date raped and it, it changed her life. I mean, I'm not okay with it at all. And the porn I watched was pretty realistic in the depths of the internet. Like, you can tell it was not like a fake or a um, you know, like putting on a show for it, let the girl pretend she's wasted. I mean, it's real and that's the only way it works for me. And I just, I don't know what to do. I feel awful. I want to get off, but I don't want to have to go through this. It's completely against my morals. I feel ashamed. I feel terrible about it. I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm going to cut your issues into two separate and distinct chunks. 
And let's talk about what I think is the first issue. Uh, your guilt and your shame over the contradiction between your values. You say that you are a really big women's rights advocate and your erotics. You are turned on by this kind of, you know, the thought of this kind of violation of, of date rape. Uh, if you're a listener to this show, you have doubtless heard us talk about people who have rape fantasies, uh, people who do not want to be raped, who have rape fantasies, that they want to explore safely and consensually. No one with rape fantasies want to be, wants to be raped. I would recommend that you pick up and read uh, the book, What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire by Daniel Bergner, who's been a guest on the show. We've had him on the show to talk about this book and uh, other books he's written. He's a sex writer uh, and writes about other stuff too, but does really amazing sex writing. And he really delves into female desire, female fantasies, the psyche, uh, women who have problems with low libido. And what is uncomfortable and awkward to unpack, and Daniel does very well in this book and all of the researchers that he quotes, almost all of whom are women, is the ubiquity, is the ubiquitousness of of these sorts of fantasies of women who are feminists and against rape, but who have fantasies about being taken, about being violated and where that stems from to a large degree. And I think this cuts across all genders and and cultures is we often eroticize that, which we fear most that uh, many of us process uh, fear through our erotic imaginations. And for a significant chunk of us that spits out, certain kinks and turn-ons. And then what do you do? Well, you can't really get away from that. You can't, what turns you on turns you on and you can feel guilty about it and put yourself in the rack about it. It's not going to change anything. And then the question becomes, how do you act responsibly? What do you do with that? How do you incorporate your pleasures and your kinks and how you get off into your sex life in a way where you're not traumatizing yourself, but you're also not hurting or traumatizing anyone else. And there are people out there who have these same contradictions. There are Jews out there who have Holocaust and Nazi fetishes and fantasies. There are African-Americans who are anti-racist, as I assume all African-Americans are, who have fantasies about master-slave relationships and the South. And there are gay men who fantasize about sexually servicing a gay basher, sexually servicing the kind of guy who hates and loathes and despises gay people and gay men. And they're aroused by the thought of being with someone like that, of being mistreated by someone like that. And there are people who are destroyed by these fantasies, people who are guilt-ridden about these fantasies. And there are people who recognize them for what they actually are, which is its eroticization of fear. And you can explore those things in a healthy way, a compartmentalized way where you acknowledge that as an individual, you are a mass of contradictions and you are lashed to this brain of yours that through no agency or choice of your own reached out, plucked this shit out of the cultural ether and eroticized it. And you're kind of stuck with it. Right? So, you know, if you are a Jewish person who's aroused, who, who's turned on his, you know, Nazi fantasies, you find somebody who is not an anti-Semite that you're attracted to, who shares these fantasies that you can explore them with safely and consensually. You don't run off and become a white supremacist and hang out with Nazis, right? And there are tons of people with these very kinks who do incorporate them into healthy, consensual sexual activity with other partners. So there's that. And you should be fine with that. You are one of the many women out there who has rape fantasies. What you shouldn't be fine with is the kind of rape porn that you're consuming. 
when you go online and you get into the, the bowels of the internet, when you go into the dark and awful places and you watch these videos of women who you believe have been date raped, when you watch videos that have been posted, you are participating in the violation of those women. You are doing something contrary to your values as a woman's rights advocate. You are participating in a very minor way in that rape. You are also, just as people who watch child pornography are creating more demand, which then leads to the creation of more child pornography, which leads to the the rape of more children, you are helping to create and sustain demand for these kinds of videos. So more women, potentially, very likely, will be violated, will be raped. And more videos like this will wind up posted to the internet. You are not wholly or solely responsible. Your contribution is but a drop of water in an ocean, right? When you watch that video. But it is a contribution. And if it, and obviously enough people are watching that all those drops of water add up to an ocean all by itself. And that you have to stop. You can explore these fantasies through fantasy. You can think about it. You can read stories about it. There are online archives of uh, erotic stories written by people who have these sorts of fantasies, um, dark and awful and sinister. And it's just literature. It's just words strung together. Nobody was harmed in the creation of stories about fictional harm being done. And the writing and the reading of that is consensual and will give you pleasure and is harmless. There are no victims. Your guilt, and it was just so apparent, your pain, which is so apparent in your voice, I think emanates from this point. You go and watch those videos. You get off and the guilt swamps you. You feel terrible afterwards. And I don't want to pile on because you sound miserable, but you should feel terrible afterwards and you need to tap into those bad feelings and remember them because they will give you the strength that you need to knock this off, to stop participating in the violation of these women who may not even know these videos are online by watching them, by creating more demand for them, which is going to lead to the violation of yet more women. That is what is in contradiction with your values as a women's rights advocate. Not that you have these fantasies. That is not a contradiction at all. A lot of people have fantasies that seem diametrically opposed from their values. That's, that's what fantasy and erotics can often be about, that kind of play, that kind of transgression, exploring those taboos safely, consensually, in a circumstance where all participants are giving and obtaining pleasure. The videos that you're watching online were not created in a circumstance where all participants were giving and obtaining pleasure consensually, equally. And that is what you have to stop. You can't do it on your own. Get a therapist. Go see a shrink. Talk this out. And go elsewhere online. The itch you need to scratch, you can scratch without participating in the violation of women who are in those videos and without creating more demand for more videos like that. So to summarize, I want you to forgive yourself for having these desires. You didn't choose these desires. And I want you to incorporate them into your life in a healthier way and reward yourself. Go out there and find the porn that works for you, that has not been created in a circumstance where someone's violated. And when you find that porn, whether it's animation, whether it's literature, it's just a story, it's just writing, 
masturbate to your heart's content, reward yourself with tons of awesome and guilt-free orgasms. Because if you're exploring your fantasies in a way where no one is harmed, you have nothing, nothing to feel guilty about, and you've done nothing that's in violation of your values as a woman's rights advocate. And finally, you know, by calling this show, you've probably reached other women who feel the same way that you do, who may be doing the same things that you do, and you've helped them. By reaching out and asking for help yourself, you've helped others. And you can feel good about that, and that definitely aligns with your values. As much as it pains me to admit, and I rarely admit it, I am not the only advice columnist in the world, the only advice professional out there. There are tons of other advice columnists and advice podcasters. Uh, And so every once in a while, we like to invite one of my rivals on the show for a little segment we call Second Opinion. And we throw a couple of questions their way from the Savage Lovecast pile, and we just have a convo. And joining us today, Margot Howard. She's been a writer and a journalist for over 45 years. She wrote an advice column for 15 years, first for Slate as Dear Prudy, and then her own Dear Margot column. Her third book, Eat, Drink, and Remarry, Confessions of a Serial Wife, which I am reading now. I'm about halfway through it, and it's awesome. It will be published on September 30th. Not incidentally, uh, Margot's mom was Ann Landers, and Margot joins us now by phone. Hey, Margot. Hi, dear. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Fine. I have good news for you. What's that? I retired as an advice columnist. No longer a rival. I leave the field to you. <laughs> I knew that from reading your book, actually, that you had uh, yes. you had put down that that mantle. And that's weird. I always say that your mom, like... Like I was going to be like your mom, you know, they would have to pry my advice column from my cold dead hands one day. Your mom was writing her column until the day she died, basically. But you're you're going a different route. Yeah, um, I I said everything that I needed to say. People pretty much knew what I thought about things. And I got tired of syndicate um, deadlines. Uh, well, I've been writing a column for almost 10 years longer than you were writing your advice column, although you were a professional journalist for a lot longer than uh, I've yeah. been writing professionally. Uh, and I don't feel like I've gotten to say everything I wanted to say. Is that just like a, a male-female difference? Well, of course not, because there are still more dirty words to come out. <laughs> and dirty words to invent. And uh, Yes. And people are infinitely perverse. People are constantly – because my column focuses on kink and sex and desire uh, and not so much, you know, toilet paper rolls and marriage uh, and dating and who gets to sit where at the wedding. Um, there's always new stuff going on in my column, always new new kinks rearing their ugly head. Uh, here's a question that I get frequently as an advice columnist. I wonder if you got it when you were still in the biz. Uh, what's the weirdest question you ever got at your column? You know, I never know how to answer that. I think I've seen so many letters. Uh, do you know what yours is? No. I always talk about the weirdest responses I ever got. You know, when I, somebody told me that he was married to his horse and I asked him if it was a boy horse or a girl horse and he got all indignant uh, because I had implied that he might be a homosexual <laughs> and had married a male horse. <laughs> and that's, what I, that's the only thing that ever comes to mind when people say weirdest question and it's actually not a question. It was an answer. I can give you my mother's. What was that? A man wanted to know if it was all right if he died, if he could be buried in his Chevrolet. (laughs) And what did your mom tell him? I think she said if the funeral director will do it, it's fine with me. When you got into the – when you started writing uh, Dear Prudy, were you reluctant to start doing an advice column because your mother had been such a prominent advice columnist? 
You know, I I was. I hid from the advice business for 30 years when I was what I call a straight journalist, pardon the expression. Uh-huh. Um, and when I went in the business and was given a column very young and, and newly in the business, everybody made moves toward me to write an advice column. All the women's magazines asked and and Penthouse. Wait, wait. Penthouse asked you to write an advice column? Yeah. Wow, because of crazy. the old lady. Everybody thought... They, the connection would be good. And they figured if she did it so well that maybe I could. So was your mom still alive when you started writing Prudence? She was. And this is so funny. And what did she She think? thought I was very good. And the syndicate people said that I was sort of epi the next generation. I was a little hipper. Mm-hmm. I would use double entendre. I would I use literary illusions. And she was, she was a Luddite like I was. So the way she could see what I did, since she didn't go online, I would print out Prudy when it ran. I would fax it to her. She would fax it back to me, knowing it had already run, and it was edited. <laughs> you know, I know how much of a letter your mom was because I have her IBM Selectrix in my office. I have two of your mom's typewriters in my office. Oh, my God. Two typewriters and the desk. And the desk. The desk that your mom wrote her column at. I have it in my office. But I also at the auction of, of her effects, which I got your permission to go by her desk because I didn't want to seem as if I was being uh, disrespectful. Um, but you okay because oh. you got it. Um, I also bought her, her typewriters, her IBM Selectrix, that she was using until the day she died. Okay. Do you want to get back into the advice biz for a couple of minutes here? Take some calls? Sure. All right. Sure. Here's the first one. Hi. I'm a 24-year-old woman dating a 35-year-old man. Um, we've been together for about six months now. We've been friends for about two years before that. Uh, recently, I asked him if maybe in about six months, so we would have been dating in about a year, uh, if he would want to move in. That's when my lease ends on my current apartment. The reaction that I got was, well, I like my alone time, so I wouldn't bet on it. They hurt my feelings. He currently lives with his parents. Um, He has for his whole life due to medical reasons. So I think he's gotten in the the habit or in in a comfortable place living with his parents and not having to worry about rent and other things or even living with another partner. So I was just wondering if there's anything I can do to show him that living together would be a good idea. He doesn't seem open to it at all. I don't know if I need to start cooking a dinner or something like that to show him that I can cook and take care of him or something. Um, Any advice would be great. Thank you. So Margo, your book is about having been married four times. Yes. Uh, You must have some insight for this woman about landing a man. Well, it ain't cooking. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, is this the man she wants to attempt to land? Would, you- well, you know, I, I don't want to break it to her, but there's something wrong with this whole setup. Um, he lives with his parents, and he says he likes his alone time. What he didn't say was that you are not for the long haul. But on the bright side, I think that you may have dodged a bullet. Absolutely. It just sounds like there's something wrong with this situation. He's not, as they say, that into her. And and by the way, I never believed that old canard that the way to a man's heart was through his stomach. 
I think the way to a man's heart is through his head and his nether regions. <laughs> I'm with you there, I have to say. It, it, it seems crazy, though, that she's 24 years old. She's pursuing a 35-year-old man who lives at home with mommy and daddy and apparently doesn't pay rent. And this is who you want to move in with you? Somebody who's in the habit of not pulling his own weight? paying. There's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s now who've been living at home because of the economic recession and the catastrophe. I don't think multi-gen households are a bad idea. It might be a smart idea. Other cultures do it. People would have more spending money. But not paying rent, not pulling your weight even when you're living with your mommy and daddy, this is not some guy you want to tie yourself to for the rest of your life, in my opinion. I think she just wants a guy. There are how many other billions out there, including, what, three of your ex-husbands out there and on the market? No, they're not all on the market, and one's dead. <laughs> well, good, well, good to know. Margot's cast-offs aren't, aren't available for all. But there are 3.5 billion other men on the, on the planet. This isn't the only guy. Look, I, would it be rude to say this girl doesn't sound all that smart about relationships? No, it wouldn't be rude to say it. It would be rude for me to broadcast it, but it wouldn't be rude for you to say it. <laughs> So what does she need to do to get smarter? What's your advice to her to be smarter about marriage, love, relationships? As a serial wife, what's your advice? Yeah, well, even as a first wife, I think that she should factor in what you said. Um, mine was more general than your advice. I think she's not thinking about his um, immaturity and his willingness to be kept, if you will. And I think she needs to reevaluate how she wants to continue her life and what it is in a man that she wants. And it sounds like she can't even get this one. Hey, Dan, I'm a 22-year-old straight male, and I have a question regarding ejaculation. So recently, my uh, drama professor gave me a book called The Tao Book of Sexology. And I'm reading it, and it says that apparently a dude can do a thing where instead of, uh, when he has an orgasm, instead of ejaculating, he ejaculates, he does it by pressing a, like a pressure point in between your asshole and your ball. So I've tried this. I can't fucking figure it out. But the reason it seems cool is because instead of getting all tired and worn out, like usual, you're actually supposed to be reinvigorated and ready to go and you know, please your lady to maximum level. And also in this book, it says that a lady has nine levels of orgasm. And that usually she just gets to level four, and most girls think that that's, like, the greatest thing ever, but really there's not. So, and, and then the book goes on to say, the only way you can achieve this, you know, maximum ladygasm is to ejaculate, keep your energy up. And that, 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 that. So anyway, it all seems really cool, and uh, but I don't know, it seems kind of far-fetched. It seems that this is real. I know people that were doing it. So anyway, your uh, your professional opinion on this matter would be awesome. Margot, uh, your best shot, ejaculation. How can you do it? I would recommend that this woman get in touch with Trudy Styler because I know nothing about tantric sex, except that it takes forever, and that's not my idea of a good time. You know, it's I not... Regret Go ahead. It's, it's a man who asked the question, but I agree with you 100%. When people talk about tantric and their eight-hour orgasms, I'm like, I have a job, and I, you know, I want to read the New York Times today, and I need to make dinner for my family, and I don't have, I don't have time for an eight-hour orgasm. Thank you very much. No, I, I know it's a man, but Trudy Styler just talks about it all the time. Who's Trudy Styler? Who's Trudy? 
Trudy Styler is married to Sting. Oh, oh, oh! My, you're you're much hipper with the pop culture than I am because I don't know. She's who Trudy famous Styler for talking about fucking tantric. Uh huh. Or tantric fucking, if you like. <laughs> but uh, but the reason I mentioned her is because that's the the name that I associate tantric sex with. She's a fabulously wealthy woman. She has time in her day for nine-hour, eight-hour orgasms. The rest of us don't. If you're married to Sting, I guess you can spend all day ejaculating. But if you're not married to Sting... I think that's just ridiculous. You've got shit to do. I regret that I have nothing substantial to offer this caller except to wonder why his drama teacher is giving him a book about any kind of sex. Maybe he was trying to louse up his relationship with the lady friend so he might look the drama teacher's way. I don't know. I don't know either. It does seem a little creepy and inappropriate. But he is 22, and adults, he's not, he's not a 16-year-old getting a book from his drama teacher about tantric sex. So it's not as creepy as it could be, but still, it seems a little creepy. Odd. Odd. I, I am with you there. And again, your opinion generally of ta- tantric sex techniques? You've never incorporated them into your own life? No, I don't know how. And no interest? No. Me neither. I'm like you. I have things to do. Who wants to be in the sack for hours and hours? I don't. And, you know, I'm like sex positive sex guy. And often this called this exchange that we've just had. We are going to get buried in calls from angry tantric sex practitioners. Uh, But I just I'm with Margo. Shit to do. Shit to do. No time for Tantra. Sorry. (laughs) Guys to marry. Places to go. Things to see. Indeed. So many men, so little time. And you can squeeze more men in if your orgasms don't last eight hours long. You can, you can move them through more quickly. Margot <laughs> Howard, author of the new memoir, Eat, Drink, and Remarry, Confessions of a Serial Wife. Fifteen years as an advice columnist for, for Slate as Dear Prudy, and then her own Dear Margot column, which was syndicated in daily papers all across the country. Margot, it was a real pleasure getting to chat with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks, my dear. Hi, Dan. I am a new resident to the Northwest, and within a week of being here, I jumped on OkCupid to meet some people, make some friends, and one of the first people to message me was this really sexy nurse guy. He is seven years older than me. I'm 23 and he's 30, uh, which I think is a good thing because I often find dating people my age to be a little frustrating. I feel like an old soul a lot of times. Anyways, this guy is pretty fantastic in a lot of ways. He's been through a lot. He is really respectful of my boundaries and has been really giving and loving. It hasn't been long, but it already feels really, I don't know, special between us. And also, P.S., the sex is really fantastic and is satisfying in ways that I've always dreamed of but haven't actually had so anyways my one hang-up is that he reminds me of one of my exes like a lot he looks at me in the same way they have really similar eyes and faces and he just kind of has like some of the same energy that my ex did and my ex was a really great person but we ultimately stopped dating because I found for I mean a, a spiritual path and a spiritual person, and he didn't really compete with that. He was more about career. And this person that I'm seeing now, he is a 
seems to be more open to that kind of thing, but I haven't really brought it up too much because I'm kind of afraid of what I'll find. He's a nurse, so he's all about the factual medicine, I would assume. And a couple of times I've brought up small things. He's kind of giggled at it. And I don't know if that's the worst thing in the world, but I'm just kind of scared that maybe I'll ruin this because of my own fears of the same thing happening again, that I won't feel connected due to a lack of shared interest in the more spiritual side of life, the universe just putting things together in a divine way. And that kind of conversation, I think, is really important for me. I don't know. I think that this could be something really, really, really good. And I don't, I'm just scared. Someone needs to really study the correlation between old souls, uh, which you claim to have, and the upward inflection, which you also have, uh, which I've always regarded as evidence of, I don't know, insecurity or immaturity. When someone ends every sentence with that up inflection, it just doesn't sound very elderly, soul-wise or otherwise. So it's just, just something to be conscious of. I just – I don't want to shit all over you. But Also to factual medicine, you're worried that this medical professional, that this nurse might be invested emotionally or professionally in factual medicine? I would hope the fuck so. I hope he's not practicing fictitious medicine. That would be actionable. That could get him thrown in jail. If he should accidentally kill someone with, I don't know, instead of chemotherapy drugs, handing them Jane Austen, that would be terrible. That wouldn't be medicine at all. You know, if you are a deeply spiritual old soul with an up inflection that you will get a handle on, you're young. That's a trope of youth that you will conquer with that old soul of yours. You should just disclose that right away. If you require in a partner a certain amount of woohoo or susceptibility to woohoo, just put that on the table. It might ruin it, but if it ruins it, don't you want it ruined? You've said you cannot be with someone who does not share your aversion to factual medicine and does not share your attitude toward the universe, which puts things together in a divine way, like Ebola. So that's a deal breaker for you after you first get to know somebody a little bit and you establish mutual connection and attraction. Then at a certain point, you start vetting. You start digging through. You start throwing your deal breakers out on the table. If you have a certain kink that you require, if you want children for sure, you know that about yourself. If you only date medical professionals who do not believe in medicine, you throw that on the table. And then if he ain't right for you and you ain't right for him, you shake hands and you say that's too bad and you part company and you get yourself to homeopathic clinic or burning man or something and you find somebody who's more aligned with your values. Hi, Dan. My name is Lynette and I am a pansexual female living in Oregon. I have been dating a fella since April. We have not held hands, we have not kissed, we have not done anything, and um, I have thrown up all kinds of green lights, so he knows it's cool. Last weekend, I was at his house cooking dinner with him, 
and asked him point blank, uh, what's the deal? And uh, he was very evasive. So I need to know, I guess, what to do now, whether to just drop it, let it go, um, or to pursue this. Hey, it's Dan Savage. Hi, Dan. I just listened to your question, and I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. You say there's more. You say there's more to the story, and I want to know what that is. Is he a billionaire or something? What could be keeping you? Oh no, he's, he's definitely not a billionaire. <laughs> um, is he an Adonis? See. Like, what is it? Because you've you've been dating him since April, and he has expressed no interest in you sexually at all. Made no moves. No, he no, he actually has. However, he hasn't physically made any moves. And so that's, that's where the confusion lies. Okay, like wait. He, no, now I'm confused because I said he's made no moves. And you said, oh, no, he actually has, but he's made no moves. But he's expressed an interest in you sexually? Right. He says, I want to fuck you and then doesn't? He hasn't said that he wants to fuck me. So what has he said that, that amounts to an expression of sexual interest in you? He has expressed a desire to move forward beyond friendship but um hasn't really said anything beyond that like that he wants to trust me or or anything so when i just point blank told him last weekend well you know we should kiss and we attempted to do that it just fell you haven't even kissed since april you've never even kissed once until until you explicitly said kiss me motherfucker we tried Huh? Until you said you have to kiss me now. In six months, there was no kissing, no even moves to kiss. <laughs> nothing, nothing. All right. Nothing. How long are you going to go on banging your head against this brick wall? A brick wall of isn't attracted to you or is asexual or is gay? Like, how much more time are you going to invest in this dude? Exactly. I'm wondering if, if he's asexual. Um, that's, that's where my head's at at this point. Um, Do you want to be with uh, someone who's asexual? I have been, and it was difficult, uh-huh. um, uh, not impossible, but I don't think that I could do that at this point. Okay, let, let me spin out a scenario for you, uh, under uh, the, the, a picture of what maybe you could have with an asexual. So if you guys have this great connection, if you're really intimate, if you can cuddle, if there's pleasure and joy in spending time together, and you can have a companionate marriage or relationship where you are friends and companions and partners but not lovers while you occasionally fuck other dudes on the side where you go get your sexual needs met elsewhere. Is that the kind of relationship that you could ever see yourself having or wanting to have? I could do that. That I could do. And I've been been in a relationship where there was cuddling and and sweetness and intimacy and um, I didn't step outside of the relationship um, at all. Well, then say that. Go ahead. Finish. However, I, I, that's, I would not be a person at this point who could be monogamous with somebody who, who was asexual. I know that about myself. Okay. Well, I would, if I were you, you've got nothing to lose because you've got nothing right now, nothing that you want. <laughs> Just say uh-huh. that to him. Say, if you're asexual, if you are not interested in sex or physical intimacy at all, and but could see being in a relationship with me, I could see that too, provided that I can uh, fuck other people. Is that something you'd be down with? Because if that's who you are, then we could make this work. But if you're asexual, but you demand that I be monogamous to you, and I've always found 
being monogamous to someone who's asexual would be really weird. Like you're then not allowed to not have sex with anybody right. else. Right. There would be a there would be a big part of my own like I'm I'm a sexual person and I know that about I'm okay. not asexual. Go for broke. Yeah. You said you broached the subject and he was evasive. Don't broach the subject. Call the question. What is right. up? Tell me. I need to know because we're not going to, I'm not going to keep seeing you anymore. I'm not going to see you anymore unless I, you level with me about what's up with you, about what's going on. Maybe he got his junk shot off in the war. Who knows? Maybe there's some deep, dark secret that he's embarrassed to share with you. Maybe he has a parasitic right. twin. Maybe there's something he's afraid to get anything started because he's not yet comfortable enough with you to come out about X, Y, or Z. And if you call the question, maybe he'll come out to you about that thing. And then if that's something you can mm-hmm. roll with that's really blocking him, maybe you could get there. Or if he's asexual, you could negotiate a deal where you could be partners and intimate but sexual with others. But you shouldn't waste mm-hmm. any more time unless you guys get honest with each other, unless you have a big I, talk. I agree and that's I agree, and that's why I called you to get a little feedback. Good luck. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I've been married for 10 years, and my husband and I are getting a divorce. So my question is, a few months ago, we tried having an open relationship. Obviously, that didn't fix things. So I am a little bit worried that he will try to use this against me. Um, We have a small child, and I don't want to... I don't want us to have to come up and face some kind of repercussions for doing something we both agreed on. Diana Adams is an attorney with a law firm based in New York City who supports clients who are LGBTQ, polyamorous, and in non-traditional family structures. Diana has litigated many child custody cases in which a partner's sexuality is used against them and consults on trial strategy on these cases nationwide. Diana's advocacy is informed by her identity as an out bisexual polyamorous woman, and she joins us again by phone for the podcast. Hey, Diana, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to be here, Dan. So this call, I I listened to this call and instantly thought of you, of course, because you must face this frequently where one person initiated or proposed poly or or openness and then they wind up in divorce court and that's just laying there and could potentially be used against them in a custody dispute. Is that common? Yes, absolutely. I have worked on many child custody cases in which a parent is shamed for being kinky in an open relationship or even a single mom who actively dates more than one person. And unfortunately, this is most commonly a situation in which a former partner is bringing this out against them. Um, And that's pretty common in, in situations in which perhaps a former spouse wants to ruin someone's life and wants to shame them and threaten uh, taking away their children through custody. What, what can she do to defend herself against that if he brings it up? What's the, what's the defense? Well, I think that it's really important to keep in mind where she is because the standard in these cases is the best interest of the child in child custody cases, and that's incredibly subjective. Uh, a judge in a conservative area in cases I've had might prefer a parent who's Christian. I've had other liberal judges choose a parent who lives in a lesbian collective. So if she really needs to think about what kind of court situation she could be in. And when I consult nationwide, the zip code plays a big role given how conservative the area is. And so what's really important in these cases, um, if this does come up, is to really address with fierce empathy what the concerns that a judge might have or an appointed attorney for the child might have and to reassure them that 
uh, that the fears that they have are, are not what's really taking place. So, for instance, no, this parent doesn't wear fetish outfits in front of the kids. No, they're not letting their kids get attached to their lovers who may disappear in a few months. And yes, of course, they're putting their kids above their personal adventures and what they're doing on their Saturday evenings is not affecting their kids at all. So I refocus on the parenting and that the parent is using good parenting judgment to prevent a slippery slope from a judge saying, well, this parent has a non-normative sexuality that I don't relate to and find freaky into slipping into uh, this parent might make other moral choices related to their parenting with which I wouldn't agree, such as exposing your child to your adult sex life. So when I break that slippery slope by clarifying that the polyamory, the kink, or the dating behavior of the parent is within the realm of normal, healthy adult expression and that they're using great judgment as a parent, um, that often breaks that cycle. And if that doesn't work, I get a sex positive or at least a progressive seeming forensic psychologist to evaluate the family to back me up. So the so the the idea is you want to separate the sex you're having from the parenting you're doing, and, and that is possible in court. You can go in and say whatever you think of what I might do in private. Here's what I do when I parent, and my parenting is golden. That's the argument. That's the defense. Absolutely, and frequently in the cases in which one parent is using this against another parent and saying, I want to ruin the life of my uh, child's mother because she left me by calling her a sex addict um, in court and threatening to take away the child. That's often somebody who's not putting their child first because by trying to go on a campaign of humiliating their child's parent, that's probably not best for their child. That's probably not good parenting judgment. And so in these cases, I refocus back to who's actually the primary caretaker, who's providing for the child emotionally, um, and in terms of day-to-day care. And I've actually, in cases like that... And is it providing for the child if your mission is to destroy that child's other parent? Absolutely. And so those people are very frequently not really putting their child first in other ways. So I've refocused back to um, the person making those accusations. Who's your child's pediatrician? What health issue did they have last year? What's their favorite book? When's the last time you made them dinner or gave them a bath? How much time do you actually spend with your child? Um, And who was there for your child during all of those things? And that's often very effective on its own. You've had to question in court a parent who is using this against another parent, and those, that's, the, that's the line of questioning you've employed to prove who the primary parent is or the more involved parent might be? Yes, I've, I've focused back on who's the more involved parent, and then I've also um, done everything I can to emphasize that my client's using strong parenting judgment, um, that there's absolutely no concerns about their parenting behavior at all. But even if you, even if you employ your tactics, your strategy, it's not a guarantee win, right? Have you lost cases it's not when a you've these win. arguments? Yes, I have. And that's very frequently based on longitude and latitude. I hear these cases throughout New York State, and I win in New York City up to Westchester. And then the further north I go and the more conservative the areas are, the more there's really a risk. Mm. And that's something for people to be aware of. Um, for instance, if you want to start a poly- polyamorous collective, you might want, want to live in rural North Carolina. Be aware that there are places where there, you may not have your rights um, fully enforced to be able to live your own private life in court. There are some communities that will not support you, and this is one ramification of, of living in those kinds of communities. Not everyone has the choice to live in a place that might be um, LGBTQ-friendly or um, a safe place for people in alternative family structures, but it's something to really be aware of, and it puts it in stark relief just how much people can be affected by the fact that we don't have a, a right to sexual freedom in this country. Um, people really do get demonized for their sexuality. Again, consult your zip code before you wind up in court. 
Indeed. Um, in this particular case, this was mutual. The caller says they both participated in this open relationship. So hopefully this would prevent her spouse from totally demonizing her or people who choose open relationships in general. And I hope that a court would be able to see that and see that the couple explored an open relationship together and this, this was not just her. And it's worth it. It's worth acknowledging that there could be more bias against a woman agreeing to this um, instead of a man because of the ways that we shame sexually active women more than sexually active men. And we should, have, we should note, I think, that the, the, the husband hasn't played this card. She just fears that he could or might. So we're just gaming out uh, a possible defense if he should play it. But I think the caller was pretty clear that this is just a fear of hers, not her current reality. Hopefully this won't come to pass. Uh, Diana Adams, she's a lawyer in New York, uh, poly activist, and a frequent guest on the Savage Lovecast. Uh, you can learn more about Diana and her law practice at her website, dianaadamslaw.net. Hey, Diana, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, hi. Uh, I'm a 28-year-old uh, bi guy from Canada, and I have a question regarding the etiquette of the use of the word faggot. I am in a band with some people, some straight guys, and uh, one of them insists on singing a song where he prominently yells the word faggot a bunch of times. I told him that I wasn't super thrilled about that. Both as a bi guy, I thought it was a little bit offensive. And knowing he was a straight guy, I kind of thought he was a little bit out of his depth. I'm trying to kind of explain that to him, but he doesn't really seem to be getting the message, and he seems to just be really tone deaf, leaning on stupid arguments about it just being a word and why it shouldn't matter. I'd also like to add that the the word itself isn't really important to the content of the song. It's not about sexuality, and it's not about anything else. It's really just being used as a placeholder for a person that you don't like. And I think it's kind of stupid, and I'm really struggling on how to argue with him that this shouldn't be the case. I'd really prefer not to have to leave the band over this, but I'd love your advice on what to do. I'm not equating the F word, faggot, with the N word, but if he was singing, you know, using as a placeholder, just meaning someone I don't like, word that rhymes with bigger, Snigger, wigger, trigger. That wouldn't be okay. Everyone would recognize that for what it was. Even if you were applying the word that rhymes with bigger, wigger, trigger to someone who wasn't black, you would be clearly leveraging the anger, the racism, the viciousness of that word in its original context to create this brand new deracinated insult. And nobody would smile on that. Nobody would fail to see that for exactly what it was, offensive and stupid. And racist. What your friend is doing, what your bandmate is doing, is offensive and it's stupid and his rationalization is transparent bullshit and it is homophobic. It just means somebody I really don't like. I'm just calling this person I don't like gay because there's because that's the biggest insult in the world because I just don't like them. So I'm going to equate them with gay people who I don't like. Like, for fuck's sake, it's incredibly homophobic and he can own it. There are songs out there that I that have the word faggot in it that I don't have a problem with. Forever since the 80s, there's a song called Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. And there's a moment in the song which is uh, in a character's voice. It's a mover or something complaining about what he sees on MTV. All these people flouncing around on MTV, all these musicians, all these rich rock stars. And at one point he sings, the little faggot with the earring and the makeup, the little faggot is a millionaire, right? But it's in a character's voice and a character would probably use that word. And in that context – 
it kind of makes sense. And of course, there were probably people in the 80s and even now, if anyone ever listens to this song now, who groove on the hatiness of that word, who are like, yep, little faggots on MTV, right? But when I heard that, I heard a commentary about the kind of bigot who would say that, right? And it, there's a legitimate use, perhaps, in music. To be the singer and in the singer's voice and speaking for the band, to throw that word out to mean in our voices – somebody I really don't like is not the same sort of usage is not character driven. Is not a commentary on the kind of person who might use that word. It's a commentary on the kind of person who is using that word in this context, your lead singer who sounds like a homophobe and an asshole. And as a bi guy, I would importune you to either leave the band or continue to uh, object this. There are other words you can throw at somebody you hate that have two syllables like asshole, dipshit, fucker, that are universal and not necessarily homophobic or biphobic. Those straight guys who call gay men faggots, you know what they call bi guys behind their backs? Faggots. Hi, Dan. This is Beth in South Dakota. Um, I have a bit of a complicated question. It all started... 25 years ago when my cousin, who at the time was, is four years older than me, touched me inappropriately in many ways and um, essentially raped me. I didn't tell anyone for many, many years until last year when my husband and I were having some fun in the bedroom. He um, kind of grabbed my uh, wrist in a, in a way that kind of just sparked a bad reaction for me and Finally, after all those years of secrecy, told him what had happened. And um, we talked a lot about it and, and how I had been keeping it a secret for a really long time and how it made me feel and really kind of decided at that point in that conversation that I never wanted to see this cousin of mine who had done this to me ever again. And so the next step was to reach out to my parents and let them know that I would not be joining any uh, family gatherings on that side anymore. It just made me feel horrible and awful to be there. I just felt disgusted, um, not only myself, but also just being around him. And um, basically their reaction was that we were just kids then and it doesn't count because he was only a few years older than me and didn't know what he was doing so that I should just get over it. And we, I guess, just didn't really come to a conclusion at that moment on the way we were going to move forward. And I've been sitting at family gatherings on that side, but no explanation has been given to anyone outside of my parents about why that may be. Well, my grandmother just passed away um, last week, unfortunately, very sad. And we'll be having a, a large funeral and get together. And um, the more I think about going even to support her in this time, the more just overwhelmed and disgusted I feel about having to see this person, this abuser again, and I have to pretend like nothing happened because certainly that's what my parents believe and, and I don't know that I'm comfortable calling him out on it uh, 25 years later, nor do I even know if he remembers the incident. So, I'm just wondering what you think I should do. Should I suck it up and go to the funeral or should I, you know, make a stand and, and explain to the family why I'm not going or should I come up with an excuse? 
I'm very sorry this happened to you. I'm very sorry, extremely sorry that your cousin who raped you 25 years ago seems to have gotten away with it, right? So what do you do about grandma's funeral? Well, you asked me whether you should go and ignore him, not go, or go and cause a scene. Um, And I'm going to opt for go and ignore him. I think you should go and be the bigger person. You should go and be the better person. You should go and be the not rapist person. You should go and be the innocent person in this. You were victimized. You have done nothing wrong. But you should go and ignore him. And if that means slipping into the church for the services uh, just as they're about to begin, and if that means making a brief perfunctory appearance if there's a reception afterwards – and bringing some friends to make a little scrum around you and wearing blinders and, and blocking him out, then that might be better than alienating your entire family by causing a scene and seeming to uh, take this, the opportunity of your grandmother's funeral to draw attention to yourself, which is how some people will unfortunately react to it. If you make a scene, if you make a case, if you don't go and tell everyone why you're not going – You're distracting everyone's attention from why they're going to the funeral, which is to mourn the passing of your grandmother or their mother or their sister or their aunt and not to necessarily unpack this crime, right? So allow everyone at the funeral to focus on what they're at the funeral to focus on. Be the bigger person, the better person. The person you are, the bigger, better person. And then wait a month. Let grandma get super cold in the ground, wait a month. And there should be some accountability for this person that raped you. And at this stage, unfortunately, it's not going to be legal accountability, but there can be social accountability. And I think after a month, a month after the funeral, you should tell people why, tell your family members why you never want to be in this person's presence again and cannot be in this person's presence again. And tell people that you sucked it up for your grandmother's funeral and that was difficult for you and you're not going to do that again because he raped you and you don't want to be in his presence and nor will you be ever again. You're going to want people to take your side. You deserve to have people take your side. I think you're likelier to get your family's support in this if you don't go into the funeral and cause a scene. If you go to the funeral in and out, wait a month, then cause a scene. Then, at that point, unburden yourself. Tell people what happened. Some people are going to take your side. Some people are going to take his side. Unfortunately, that's how families roll, right? Some people are going to believe you. Some people are going to believe him. This will cause a rift. This may cause a schism in your family. But if that's what it takes to protect you from being re-traumatized by being thrown in with this person, your rapist, over and over and over again, then you should be proudly schismatic. Go cause that schism for your own sense of safety and so that there is some small piece of justice done, that there is some accountability. Again, not legal accountability at this stage, but social accountability. And also to communicate to other relatives this may be a person that their daughters should not be alone with. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to ask you today about jealousy. I am a 27-year-old gay male. little background about me. I grew up from when I was about 15 
eyes was when I became sexually active, but it was an all-anonymous sex with much older men at, uh, like, parks or at gyms. Kind of, I've always been a really jealous person. I think that might have something to do with it, but I've been looking for some spiritual advice about jealousy lately. Not necessarily spiritual, but just advice in general. And when I look at for people's thoughts on jealousy, when I research it on the internet, it's mostly Christian websites. So I was wondering if you could offer a little advice about jealousy, specifically to the fact that, like I said, I'm an extremely jealous person. I was celibate for like two and a half years just because I had a lot of shame. Now that I've started dating again, if we're just having sex, like no emotional connection whatsoever, I'm fine. Or if we only have an emotional connection and we're not having sex, I'm fine as far as dating goes. If the two meet up at all, I become an absurdly jealous person, outrageously so. I stalk people and obsess over them and wonder what they're doing. And typically I'm meeting these people on the internet, which I think is probably a bad sign. Mostly grinder. So basically if I hook up with a guy and I find myself emotionally connected to him as well as physically, I'll see him on grinder and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing so looking? Like, why aren't you talking to me? It's this vicious cycle that I have that I've been re- I've repeated with several guys. Um, it's gotten me into trouble a couple of times because I've, I'll say crazy shit that's just out of line because I feel hurt. Anyways, I don't really know what I'm asking here. I just wish you could give me some advice on, on jealousy. So in a nutshell, you expect guys that you had one night stands with that you met on a hookup app that you met on Grinder to get off Grinder and stop seeking one night stands and stop hooking up after they fuck you because you're amazing. That seems to me to be kind of narcissistic, crossed with insecurity, crossed with rage and controlling bullshittery. And you need a therapist. You need to get help. You need to talk to somebody. And you need a therapist. You need to get help. You need to unpack that at great length. Uh, And that's obvious, right? You know this is a problem for you. You know this is destructive. You know this makes you look like an asshole because these are asshole moves. Stalking people, saying horrible, shitty things to them when they continue to date or see other people, which they have an absolute right to do unless they have made a monogamous commitment to you. So you know it's bad. You know it's self-destructive. You know it's got to stop. Go get a shrink. 27 years old, get on top of this or it will sabotage every relationship you are ever in. I think you knew that. I think you probably knew that that's what you needed to do. Maybe you just needed to hear it and maybe not just from me. We've been talking a lot on the show lately about jealousy. This issue has come up frequently. It's sort of bookended with the vibrator issue that seems to be coming up right now. There's something in the air or the water uh, and vibrators and jealousy. Those are the issues. There must be people listening out there who used to have this problem, this identical problem and overcame it or people who have partners who had this problem and overcame it. We're able to get a grip and conquer jealousy. If you are one of those people or you're with one of those people who conquered jealousy, give us a call and uh, share with us your strategy. Tell us what you did that worked, how you reached into your motherfucker board and pulled this crap out. 206-201-2720. 
and we will play some of your responses and your advice for this caller on a future show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to your listener on episode 413 with the American friend whose British boyfriend didn't think she's funny. Well, I totally agree with Nancy that men can be sexist with respect to women's humor. I think that the problem doesn't lie with gender, but probably lies with nationality. Uh, I'm an American who is generally regarded as very funny. I'm used to being the funniest person in the room, um, but my sense of humor is very American. And I learned that as a painful lesson when I moved to Britain, and to my horror, I just wasn't funny anymore. Repeating the same hilarious bit, which had always killed in a louder, funnier voice, just met with these looks of mild puzzlement and annoyance. Um, but you tell those people a pun uh, in a flat voice, or you put a man in a dress, they're rolling off their bar stools. So what makes us laugh just doesn't make them laugh. So your friend's boyfriend probably isn't a jerk. He's just a Brit. Uh, just a quick comment about women not being funny. Yes, a lot of men seem to take on this. I hang out with a lot of smart, funny, amazing women, and I actually prefer to be surrounded by them. And for all the women out there, if you're not around a man who appreciates you for your wits, uh, just pull the plug. Humor and intelligence intersect so much to me that if a man doesn't think I'm funny, it's almost like saying he doesn't think I'm smart. And if they're okay with that, like they don't need me to be smart or clever or witty, you don't value what I think is incredibly valuable in a partner. You hear that men and women both highly value sense of humor, but men mean my partner will laugh at me and my jokes, and the woman will, my partner will make me laugh. And that's real backwards. Hi, Dan. Just calling about the school teacher who's got a, a guy that's bad at sex. For God's sake, please teach him. Teach him. For the love of unholy Cthulhu, teach the boy. I'm straight, so I can't speak to what it's like for gay people, though I imagine you've been playing with it for a while. By the time you get your hands on somebody else's, you have an idea of what feels good. But as a heterosexual guy, the first time we get our hands on a woman's equipment, we have no fucking clue what we're doing. Every decent lover you've ever had has a woman who taught him what he's doing. And every woman who's got a decent lover needs to find that woman and thank her. And if your guy sucks, teach him. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Margot Howard on Twitter at Margot and How. And follow Diana Adams on Twitter at Diana Adams ESQ. If you'd like to come to a live taping of the Savage Lovecast, which are always a gas, I will be doing a live taping of the Savage Lovecast on October 4th in Vancouver, British Columbia, as a part of the Northwest Podcast Fest. It'll be me, Lori Brodo, a sex researcher extraordinaire, and Rachel Lark, singer and songwriter from San Francisco, and more, all live on stage October 4th, 2 p.m. at the Vogue Theater in Vancouver, British Columbia. Go to northwestpodcastfest.com slash tickets for tickets to my podcast and all the other podcasts that will be recording and performing live in Vancouver as part of the festival. And all of us at the Savage Lovecast want to wish Sean Kenny a happy 
Selfish Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that.